Section 20 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Friday, 15th October. We this morning found that we could not proceed, there being a violent storm of wind and rain, and the rivers being impassable. When I expressed my discontent at our confinement, Dr. Johnson said, Now that I have an opportunity of writing to the mainland, I am in no such haste. I was amused with his being so easily satisfied, for the truth was that the gentleman who was to convey our letters, as I was now informed, was not to set out for Inverary for some time, so that it was probable we should be there as soon as he. However, I did not undeceive my friend, but suffered him to enjoy his fancy. Dr. Johnson asked in the evening to see Dr. Maclean's books. He took down Willis de Anima Brutorum and pored over it a good deal. Miss Maclean produced some Erse poems by John Maclean, who was a famous bard in Mull and had died only a few years ago. He could neither read nor write. She read and translated two of them one a kind of elegy on Sir John Maclean's being obliged to fly his country in 1715, another a dialogue between two Roman Catholic young ladies, sisters, whether it was better to be a nun or to marry. I could not perceive much poetical imagery in the translation, yet all of our company who understood us seemed charmed with the original. There may perhaps be some choice of expression and some excellence of arrangement that cannot be shown in translation. After we had exhausted the Erse poems, of which Dr. Johnson said nothing, Miss Maclean gave us several tunes on a spinet, which, though made so long ago as in 1667, was still very well toned. She sung along with it. Dr. Johnson seemed pleased with the music, though he owns he neither likes it nor has hardly any perception of it. At Mr. Macpherson's in Slate, he told us that he knew a dumb from a trumpet and a bagpipe from a guitar, which was about the extent of his knowledge of music. Tonight, he said, that if he had learnt music, he should have been afraid he would have done nothing else but play. It was a method of employing the mind without the labour of thinking at all, and with some applause from a man's self. We had the music of the bagpipe every day at Armadale, Dunvegan and Col. Dr. Johnson appeared fond of it, and used often to stand for some time with his ear close to the great drone. The penurious gentleman of our acquaintance, formerly alluded to, afforded us a topic of conversation tonight. Dr. Johnson said, I ought to write down a collection of the instances of his narrowness, as they almost exceeded belief. Cole told us that O'Kane, the famous Irish harper, was once at that gentleman's house. He could not find in his heart to give him any money, but gave him a key for a harp, which was finely ornamented with gold and silver, and with a precious stone, and was worth eighty or a hundred guineas. He did not know the value of it, and when he came to know it, he would fain have had it back, but O'Kane took care that he should not. Johnson, they exaggerate the value. Everybody is so desirous that he should be fleeced. I am very willing it should be worth eighty or a hundred guineas, but I do not believe it. Boswell, 
I do not think O'Kane was obliged to give it back. Johnson. No, sir. If a man with his eyes open and without any means used to deceive him gives me a thing, I am not to let him have it again when he grows wiser. I like to see how avarice defeats itself, how when avoiding to part with money the miser gives something more valuable. Cole said the gentleman's relations were angry at his giving away the harp key, for it had been long in the family. Johnson, sir, he values a new guinea more than an old friend. Cole also told us that the same person, having come up with a sergeant and twenty men, working on the high road, he entered into discourse with the sergeant, and then gave him sixpence for the men to drink. The sergeant asked, who is this fellow? Upon being informed, he said, if I had known who he was, I should have thrown it in his face. Johnson, there is much want of sense in all this. He had no business to speak with the sergeant. He might have been in haste and trotted on. He had not learnt to be a miser. I believe we must take him apprentice. Boswell, he would grudge giving half a guinea to be taught. Johnson, nay, sir, you must teach him gratis. You must give him an opportunity to practice your precepts. Let me now go back and glean Johnsoniana. The Saturday before we sailed from Slate, I sat a while in the afternoon with Dr. Johnson in his room, in a quiet, serious frame. I observed that hardly any man was accurately prepared for dying, but almost every one left something undone, something in confusion, that my father indeed told me he knew one man, Carlyle of Limekilns, after whose death all his papers were found in exact order and nothing was omitted in his will. Johnson. Sir, I had an uncle who died so, but such attention requires great leisure and great firmness of mind. If one was to think constantly of death, the business of life would stand still. I am no friend to making religion appear too hard. Many good people have done harm by giving severe notions of it. In the same way as to learning, I never frighten young people with difficulties. On the contrary, I tell them that they may very easily get as much as will do very well. I do not indeed tell them that they will be Bentleys. The night we rode to Cole's house, I said, Lord Elibank is probably wondering what is become of us. Johnson. No, no, he is not thinking of us. Boswell. But recollect the warmth with which he wrote. Are we not to believe a man when he says he has a great desire to see another? Don't you believe that I was very impatient for your coming to Scotland? Johnson. Yes, sir, I believe you were, and I was impatient to come to you. A young man feels so, but seldom an old man. I, however, convinced him that Lord Elibank, who has much of the spirit of a young man, might feel so. He asked me if our jaunt had answered expectation. I said it had much exceeded it. I expected much difficulty with him, and had not found it. And, he added, wherever we have come we have been received like princes in their progress. He said he would not wish not to be disgusted in the highlands, for that would be to lose the power of distinguishing, and a man might then lie down in the middle of them. He wished only to conceal his disgust. At Captain Maclean's I mentioned Pope's friend Spence. Johnson, he was a weak, conceited man. Boswell, a good scholar, sir? 
Johnson. Why, no, sir. Boswell. He was a pretty scholar. Johnson. You have about reached him. Last night at the inn where the factor in Taere spoke of his having heard that a roof was put on some part of the buildings of the Eichenkill, I unluckily said it will be fortunate if we find a cathedral with a roof on it. I said this from a foolish anxiety to engage Dr. Johnson's curiosity more. He took me short at once. What, sir? How can you talk so? If we shall find a cathedral roofed, as if we were going to a terra incognita, when everything that is at Icomkill is so well known. You are like some New England men who came to the mouth of the Thames. Come, said they, let us go up and see what sort of inhabitants there are here. They talked, sir, as if they had been to go up the Susquehanna or any other American river. Saturday, 16th October. This day there was a new moon, and the weather changed for the better. Dr. Johnson said of Miss Maclean, She is the most accomplished lady that I have found in the Highlands. She knows French, music and drawing, sews neatly, makes shell work and can milk cows. In short, she can do everything. She talks sensibly and is the first person whom I have found that can translate Earth's poetry literally. We set out mounted on little mull horses. Mull corresponded exactly with the idea which I had always had of it, a hilly country diversified with heath and grass and many rivulets. Dr. Johnson was not in very good humour. He said it was a dreary country, much worse than sky. I differed from him. Oh, sir, said he, a most dolorous country. We had a very hard journey today. I had no bridle for my sheltie, but only a halter, and Joseph rode without a saddle. At one place, a loch having swelled over the road, we were obliged to plunge through pretty deep water. Dr. Johnson observed how helpless a man would be were he travelling here alone, and should meet with any accident, and said he longed to get to a country of saddles and bridles. He was more out of humour today than he has been in the course of our tour, being fretted to find that his little horse could scarcely support his weight, and having suffered a loss which, though small in itself, was of some consequence to him while travelling the rugged steps of Mull, where he was at times obliged to walk. The loss that I allude to was that of the large oak stick, which, as I formerly mentioned, he had brought with him from London. It was of great use to him in our wild peregrination, for ever since his last illness in 1766 he has had a weakness in his knees and has not been able to walk easily. It had, too, the properties of a measure, for one nail was driven into it at the length of a foot, another at that of a yard. In return for the services it had done him, he said this morning he would make a present of it to some museum but he little thought he was so soon to lose it. As he preferred riding with a switch, it was entrusted to a fellow to be delivered to our baggage-man, who followed us at some distance, but we never saw it more. I could not persuade him out of a suspicion that it had been stolen. No, no, my friend, said he, it is not to be expected that any man in Mull who has got it will part with it. Consider, sir, the value of such a piece of timber here. 
As we travelled this forenoon, we met Dr. Maclean, who expressed much regret at his having been so unfortunate as to be absent while we were at his house. We were in hopes to get to Sir Alan Maclean's at Inch Kenneth tonight, but the eight miles of which our road was said to consist were so very long that we did not reach the opposite coast of Mull till seven at night, though we had set out about eleven in the forenoon and when we did arrive there we found the wind strong against us. Col determined that we should pass the night at Macquarie's in the island of Ulva, which lies between Mull and Inch Kenneth, and a servant was sent forward to the ferry to secure the boat for us. But the boat was gone to the Ulva side, and the wind was so high that the people could not hear him call, and the night so dark that they could not see a signal. We should have been in a very bad situation had there not fortunately been lying in the little sound of Ulva an Irish vessel, the Bonetta, of Londonderry, Captain McClure, master. He himself was at Macquarie's, but his men obligingly came with their longboat and ferried us over. Macquarie's house was mean, but we were agreeably surprised with the appearance of the master, whom we found to be intelligent, polite, and much a man of the world. Though his clan is not numerous, he is a very ancient chief, and has a burial place at Iconkill. He told us his family had possessed Alva for nine hundred years, but I was distressed to hear that it was soon to be sold for payment of his debts. Captain McClure, whom we found here, was of Scotch extraction, and properly a MacLeod, being descended of some of the MacLeods who went with Sir Norman of Bernera to the Battle of Worcester and after the defeat of the royalists fled to ireland and to conceal themselves took a different name he told me there was a great number of them about londonderry some of good property i said they should now resume their real name the laird of macleod should go over and assemble them and make them all drink the large horn full and from that time they should be macleods the captain informed us he had named his ship the bonetta out of gratitude to Providence, for once, when he was sailing to America with a good number of passengers, the ship in which he then sailed was becalmed for five weeks, and during all that time numbers of the fish Bonetta swam close to her and were caught for food. He resolved, therefore, that the ship he should next get should be called the Bonetta. Macquarie told us a strong instance of the second sight. He had gone to Edinburgh and taken a man-servant along with him. An old woman who was in the house said one day, Macquarie will be at home tomorrow and will bring two gentlemen with him. And, she said, she saw his servant return in red and green. He did come home next day. He had two gentlemen with him, and his servant had a new red and green livery which Macquarie had bought for him at Edinburgh upon a sudden thought, not having the least intention when he left home to put his servant in livery, so that the old woman could not have heard any previous mention of it. This, he assured us, was a true story. Macquarie insisted that the Mercato Mulierum, mentioned in our old charters, did really mean the privilege which a lord of a manor or a baron had to have the first night of all his vassals' wives. 
Dr. Johnson said the belief of such a custom having existed was also held in England, where there is a tenure called Borough English, by which the eldest child does not inherit from a doubt of his being the son of the tenant. Macquarie told us that still on the marriage of each of his tenants a sheep is due to him, for which the composition is fixed at five shillings. I suppose Alva is the only place where this custom remains. Talking of the sale of an estate of an ancient family, which was said to have been purchased much under its value by the confidential lawyer of that family, and it being mentioned that the sale would probably be set aside by a suit in equity, Dr. Johnson said, I am very willing that this sale should be set aside, but I doubt much whether the suit will be successful, for the argument for avoiding the sale is founded on vague and indeterminate principles, as that the price was too low, and that there was a great deal of confidence placed by the seller in the person who became the purchaser. Now, how low should a price be? Or what degree of confidence should there be to make a bargain be set aside? A bargain which is a wager of skill between man and man. If indeed any fraud can be proved, that will do. When Dr. Johnson and I were by ourselves at night, I observed of our hosts, Aspectum generosum habet, et generosum animum, he added. For fear of being overheard in the small highland houses, I often talked to him in such Latin as I could speak, and with as much of the English accent as I could assume, so as not to be understood, in case our conversation should be too loud for the space. We had each an elegant bed in the same room, and here it was that a circumstance occurred as to which he has been strangely misunderstood. From his description of his chamber, it has erroneously been supposed that his bed being too short for him, his feet during the night were in the mire, whereas he has only said that when he undressed he felt his feet in the mire, that is, the clay floor of the room on which he stood before he went into bed was wet, in consequence of the windows being broken, which let in the rain. Sunday, 17th October Being informed there was nothing worthy of observation in Alva, we took boat and proceeded to Inch Kenneth, where we were introduced by our friend Col to Sir Alan Maclean, the chief of his clan, and to two young ladies, his daughters. Inch Kenneth is a pretty little island, a mile long, and about half a mile broad, all good land. As we walked up from the shore, Dr. Johnson's heart was cheered by the sight of a road marked with cartwheels, as on the mainland, a thing which we had not seen for a long time. It gave us a pleasure similar to that which a traveller feels when, whilst wandering on what he fears is a desert island, he perceives the print of human feet. Military men acquire excellent habits of having all conveniences about them. Sir Alan Maclean, who had been long in the army, and had now a lease of the island, had formed a commodious habitation, though it consisted but of a few small buildings, only one storey high. He had in his little apartments more things than I could enumerate in a page or two. Among other agreeable circumstances, it was not the least to find here a parcel of the Caledonian Mercury, published since we left Edinburgh, which I read with that pleasure which every man feels who has been for some time secluded from the animated scenes of the busy world. Dr. Johnson found books here. 
he made me buy Bishop Gastrell's Christian Institutes, which was lying in the room. He said, I do not like to read anything on a Sunday but what is theological. Not that I would scrupulously refuse to look at anything which a friend should show me in a newspaper, but in general I would read only what is theological. I read just now some of Drummond's travels before I perceived what books were here. I then took up Derm's Physico-Theology. Every particular concerning this island having been so well described by Dr. Johnson, it will be superfluous in me to present the public with the observations that I made upon it in my journal. I was quite easy with Sir Allen almost instantaneously. He knew the great intimacy that had been between my father and his predecessor Sir Hector, and was himself of a very frank disposition. After dinner Sir Allen said he had got Dr. Campbell about an hundred subscribers to his Britannia Elucidata, a work since published under the title of A Political Survey of Great Britain, of whom he believed twenty were dead, the publication having been so long delayed. Johnson. Sir, I imagine the delay of publication is owing to this, that after publication there will be no more subscribers, and few will send the additional guinea to get their books, in which they will be wrong, for there will be a great deal of instruction in the work. I think highly of Campbell. In the first place he has very good parts. In the second place he has very extensive reading, not perhaps what is properly called learning, but history, politics, and, in short, that popular knowledge which makes a man very useful. In the third place he has learned much by what is called the vox viva. He talks with a great many people. Speaking of this gentleman at Rasi, he told us that he one day called on him, and they talked of Tull's husbandry. Dr. Campbell said something. Dr. Johnson began to dispute it. Come, said Dr. Campbell, we do not want to get the better of one another. We want to increase each other's ideas. Dr. Johnson took it in good part, and the conversation then went on coolly and instructively. His candour in relating this anecdote does him much credit, and his conduct on that occasion proves how easily he could be persuaded to talk from a better motive than for victory. Dr. Johnson here showed so much of the spirit of a Highlander that he won Sir Alan's heart. Indeed, he has shown it during the whole of our tour. One night in Col, he strutted about the room with a broad sword and target, and made a formidable appearance. And another night, I took the liberty to put a large blue bonnet on his head. His age, his size, and his bushy grey wig, with this covering on it, presented the image of a venerable Sanaki, and however unfavourable to the lowland Scots, he seemed much pleased to assume the appearance of an ancient Caledonian. We only regretted that he could not be prevailed with to partake of the social glass. One of his arguments against drinking appears to me not convincing. He urged that, in proportion as drinking makes a man different from what he is before he has drunk, it is bad, because it has so far affected his reason. But may it not be answered that a man may be altered by it for the better, that his spirits may be exhilarated without his reason being affected? On the general subject of drinking, however, I do not mean positively to take the other side. I am dubious non improbus. 
In the evening Sir Allan informed us that it was the custom of his house to have prayers every Sunday, and Miss Maclean read the evening service in which we all joined. I then read Ogden's second and ninth sermons on prayer, which with their other distinguished excellence have the merit of being short. Dr. Johnson said that it was the most agreeable Sunday he had ever passed, and it made such an impression on his mind that he afterwards wrote the following Latin verses upon Inch Kenneth. Insula sancti Kenetai Parva quidem regio, sed religione priorum, notar caledonias panditur itenta aquas. Voce ubi Kenetus populus domuisse feroces dicitur et vanos de duoquise deos. Huc ego delatus placido per serula corsu, scire locum volui quid daret illi novi. Ilie leniades humili regnabat in aula, leniades magnis obiliatus avis. Una duas habuit casa cum genitore puellas, quas amor undarum fingeret esse deus. Non tamen in cultae gelidis latuere subantris, acula danubii qualia savus habet. Molia non deerant vacuae solatia vitae, sive libros poscant otia sive lira. Luxeratila dies legis gens docta supernae, spe sominum ac curas cum procules jubet. Ponti interstrepius sacri non munera cultus cessarunt, pietas hic quoque cura fuit. Quid quod sacrifici versavit femina libros, legitimus faciunt pectora pura proces, quo vagor ulterius, quod ubiqui requiritur hic est, hic secura quies, hic et honestus amor. End of section 20